This is something from the heart. It's not something he's just you know, singing a song he knows. This is something that he's making up and this is how he feels. Hello, I'm Ben Ashmead and welcome to another edition of the Academy podcast. On this edition, we take time to focus on just one piece of music. Gavin Breyer's powerful and moving work, Jesus Blood Never Failed Me Yet, was performed from 8pm on the 12th of April through to 8am on the 13th of April 2019 at the Tate Modern Tanks on the South Bank in London. This marathon performance was experienced by over a thousand people, most of which found it hard not to be moved by what they heard. On this podcast, we'll hear from some of those involved in this performance, both the workshop performers and the professional musicians, those who made it happen. Um, we start to, I like to sing it with him sometimes, you know what I mean? I like to participate. The, the friends I know who have been homeless for a long time, that seems to be a common life story, really, being, being let down in relationships which have been incomplete, if not even toxic. The way they stay in people's lives, that is eternal life. And in his case, uh, he has this sort of personal requiem which has touched many people. So he continues to affect people long after, so in a way he becomes part of people's collective memory. First, though, let's examine the music itself. Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet was composed in 1971 and based on the loop of the lost voice of an anonymous homeless person singing his improvised melody for a television camera. We caught up with the composer and conductor of the piece, Gavin Bryars, a few days before the performance in St John's Church, Waterloo. I began by asking how that morning's rehearsal had gone. Well, I thought today's rehearsal went really well. There's always a bit of kind of feeling your way because the kind of it's the nature of the piece. It's not the way uh, a classical orchestra would normally encounter music. The parts are not the way they would normally look, and so little things to explain, you know, how the repetitions work, how to when you come in, and so on. And we it's a bit of trial and error. We tried things, and some things didn't work or is misunderstood. It came together, mm-hmm. and I think that by the end. Everyone is pretty clear about what we're doing. So given that we've achieved this a couple of days before the thing itself, and tomorrow both the homeless groups are going to be working independently so they get more confident. In fact, they did a little kind of private work themselves downstairs, uh, and when they came back, they were in really good voice. They were fantastic. So I think it all goes well, and I think it's in good shape. I think the one unknown, of course, is that people are not quite sure and probably never experienced durations of this kind the fact we're going to be playing for a very long time most of the orchestra are going to be playing for three hours and that can happen in an orchestral concert and they'll have breaks this time when they're not playing and so on and i won't be conducting all the time in the actual performance so that's something we'll get used to i think it's in good shape and i think we achieved a lot today i think this piece goes back to 1971 if i've got my information right Interestingly, it has a strong connection with where we are now. It was in 1971 that a friend was making a film about people living rough around here, around Waterloo, under the arches at Waterloo. I mean, they weren't as developed as they are now, and Elephant and Castle, all the tapes which were being discarded, and uh, that's where ultimately this fragment of song came from. It was in the middle of one of these tapes, and uh, I was massively touched by it. But it's this area, as it was, you know, like 47 years ago. And... um yeah, can we talk about that that voice? Did, did you find out anything about the person who, who sang it? Well, in the case of the voice, the man who sang, we know little or nothing about him because he doesn't, be, he doesn't appear in the film, which is why the tape was being discarded. So we have no image of him. There's no still photograph. There's no sort of um, sequence on film. And we all, all we have is the memory of the cameraman, mm. uh, what he remembers. And 
Uh, and all that we know is that from the, the cameraman's memory that he was old, probably in his 70s, he was fragile. He was the only one out of all the people they filmed who didn't drink. He was, the others were mostly alcoholic. They were really in a bad way, but he was not. He just had a rough life. And one imagines perhaps given the time, 1971, he may have been in a war and after the war couldn't get employment or whatever. One can only speculate. But he, he was um, small, apparently. He had a kind of grey hair and stubbly beard. But that would describe anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, so we know nothing about him at all, except this fragment of song. That's the only thing we have. And the rest we can try and just deduce from that. And the other thing we know is that uh, I spent a long time with my publishers trying to identify the source of this music. Oh, interesting. And uh, because I, didn't, I know religious music quite well, having been brought up in the church, but I didn't know this, which is one reason why I pursued it. And all the research from various hymn specialists through all sorts of resources led back to my setting of it. So there's no independent existence of this piece apart from my setting of it. And from that, we have to conclude that he improvised it, he made it up. And that makes it, for me, even more touching because mm -hmm. this is something from the heart. It's not something he's just you know, singing a song he knows. This is something that he's making up and this is how he feels. It's profound that this one moment from this one person that we don't know anything about, he sang this thing, it was captured, and we're hearing it many, many decades later. Yeah, I think that's, maybe that's the heart of the piece. I think in some ways the, the man uh, has infinite life now. It's, it's life after death, and what, one of the things that people talk about, you know, what, does, what is life after death? And in a way, it can be simply all the memories that people have of people who've passed, the way they stay in people's lives, that is eternal life. And in his case, uh, he has this sort of personal requiem, which has touched many people. So he continues to affect people long after. So in a way, he becomes part of people's collective memory. And uh, for me, uh, it's, a, it's a huge testament to what I find uh, his, an incredible dignity, an incredible optimism, a kind of simple faith. And I hear a kind of almost kind of sunshine in his voice. There's a for me, there's a smile on his face when he's singing. He doesn't sound down or bitter. Yeah. He's singing, Jesus' blood never failed me yet. But in a way, one could say, if Jesus ever failed anyone, it was that poor old guy. There he was on the streets. He'd been let down in some ways, but he yeah. didn't think so. And he was upbeat. And I think he's a kind of uh, a great kind of moral lesson in many ways, you know, uh, when you're down, it's it's not the end, and uh, he certainly didn't think so. And I, I think it's uh, it is a very powerful thing, and it has gone on long after his life, and it's gone long after mine too. Obviously, the way he sings it, there is an audience there. It's not it's not half-hearted. Well, it is. He is performing. He's obviously performing to these people who are filming him, and he's singing it as a as a kind of a, a gift, a sort of gesture. This is uh, this is my offering to you. Uh, so in that sense, he is projecting a performance. As a non-musician or non-composer, I'm interested to ask you the, the way the melody that he's made is formed. It, it feels like it's not regular. It's kind of this, 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 I don't know, a beat missing. That It's a bit wonky, you know, It's it's and, that, and that's the charm of it. Well, he, he sings in a rough three, four time, in a sort of waltz time, but 
it's not because he's singing unaccompanied. He sort of stops and starts. He's not trying to be accurate. He's not kind of got a, a, a drum kit and a bass player with him. Uh, so although it's it's clearly is a kind of in time, the time is kind of erratic, and that's one of the challenges when you're playing, is that you go with the voice, not where you think the beat should be, but where he's put the beat. The orchestra and all the players have to get used to the fact that you know the first bar is actually a lot faster than the second bar. The penultimate bar is faster than all of them, you know, and then the last bar is actually a beat longer. So there's little things like that. And so you play with a man's voice, uh, not what the conductor would normally do. And so when I'm directing it, I'm I'm following with my beat exactly what the man does, not what the page tells me. Maybe this isn't the case now, but at least when you wrote it, I, I would imagine that was something that was quite unique, you know, something that was perhaps even brave for a composer to, to, to put two things that don't necessarily fit together. I wouldn't uh, sort of try to sort of um, give myself praise with saying I was courageous in any way, but uh, it's, it's sort of like in the early parts of the, of the 20th century, there were people like Vaughan Williams and Granger and Kodai and people like that who collected folk song. They recorded it and they transcribed it. Now, in some cases, when they transcribed it, they would iron out all these erratic things and say, well, obviously he meant this kind of 3-4, but he just sang it badly. Percy Granger, who I think is the greatest of all of them, he actually kept all the inaccuracies and he would give different time signatures to each bar for that. He would even alter the words so that they followed the pronunciation of uh, the man singing. There's a, a very uh, a lovely one called a, a Sprig of Time and it was recorded in Lincolnshire. And there's this line, which line goes, once there was a spring of time. But the link, man in Lincolnshire pronounced it once. So he spells it in the text, the word W-U-N-C-E. So you have these very refined singers who sing, once there was a spring, not once. You know, so it's great. He actually goes for the, the authentic thing. This is what the man sounded like, and we should be faithful to that. It's interesting you mention all those composers, because they, they're the ones that I kind of feel are haunting your arrangement or the, 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 the sea of sound that kind of comes and... Well, they, they are part of um, that, that history of the, that respect for folk song. I mean, it comes from the Romantic era as well, though there they would more likely sort of quote, uh, make a transcription of something and include it in some symphonic context. But with those composers, uh, mainly British and some Hungarian, at the beginning of the 20th century, they respected the kind of the unique values that you find, which in a sense gets ironed out when you become too refined and too classical. So it's going back to a, a kind of source which is uh, slightly more primitive, but in many ca cases more eloquent. Trying to remember the tempo. It's quite tricky, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel pretty really well looking at that. You have to have some kind of rhythm memory. I went to 12 hours, you ought to have it. <laughs> This performance brought together musicians from the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, the South Bank Symphonia and the Gavin Briars Ensemble, along with singers from Streetwise Opera and participants from two day centres in London, the Connection at St. Martin's and the West London Mission. The project, which was conceived and led by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, worked with more than 60 people with experience of homelessness and engaged with them over 50 hours of singing and music making. It was really exciting for me because it was a piece of music that I absolutely loved. And in terms of a piece that could be performed by a group of people who've experienced homelessness, there couldn't really be anything better than this piece, which has been called uh, The Anthem for Homeless People by 
Brian Morton in The Guardian. That was the voice of Charlotte O'Dare talking about the music. She's the Academy's learning and participant producer, and she talked to me about the history and the challenges of this project. Well, I used to work on a board with um, Jess Turtle. She had mentioned that they were setting up the Museum of Homelessness, and she was talking about various ideas that they'd had. They'd had the idea that they wanted homeless people to perform Jesus Blood Never Felt Me Yet in the Turbine Hall. And then I said, I work for an orchestra, and I loved the piece of music. I'd heard it first time, I think, about 10 years ago on a bus in Cuba, which is the most incongruous setting to hear it. And it was funny because I remember the first time I heard the piece of music so clearly. It made me wonder about other pieces of music that you... It's not always the case that you really remember the first time you heard a piece of music. But with this piece of music, a lot of people I've spoken to all remember exactly where they were when they first heard it because it's kind of like nothing else you've heard before. So then we got really excited about how we could try and make that work and I approached Streetwise Opera, then I approached Gavin and he was very interested in doing it. In terms of the overnight element of the piece, uh, obviously we thought that it would be great to throw open the doors of the Tate to people overnight kind of how that came about and Gavin had always been very interested in doing a longer version of the piece so um, we kind of built it up with the various different partners the Museum of Homelessness were Tate Exchange partners which meant that they had a link with the Tate in that they were allowed to um, curate a weekend a year which is how we got through that to be able to perform at the Tate and then it was just a very long and quite slow process because for all the different partners it was a very new thing to do and presented so many different challenges along the way and had to be pushed through a lot of doors with a lot of different people right up until Christmas time before the project it felt like it could not happen at any moment so um, yeah it was quite a labour of love. Workshop leader Jackie Warduck added... Yeah, I think logistically there's been a lot of legwork and a lot of very careful thought and planning. But it feels very exciting. It's a bit, I think of it as a bit like a Buster Keaton movie with, you know, it starts with a few musicians and then more and more of us joining in and uh, coming together. So today was really exciting. That was our first coming together to rehearse. And then we'll all be together again next time on Friday. So we're at one of the last rehearsals today, but I think this has been ongoing for a couple of months. Yeah, so we've done, in fact, six weeks. So working with Connections and also at West London Day Centre. And during that time, we've run weekly music workshops so people can come along and get involved. And then they've been introduced sort of slowly and gradually to the piece. We've sort of grown it. Um, and in, with, with Connections, actually, we just started working there again after a long break. So in a way, that's, that's pretty much like starting a group up from scratch. And, you know, with the support of the centre, who've been absolutely amazing, we've managed to kind of get a core group from there as well. So I'm really, really pleased with how it's gone. Could you talk a little about um, the sort of mixed range and ability? Obviously, we have from professional musicians to people who are picking up a percussion instrument or an electronic keyboard yeah. and, and, and joining in. Yeah, that's it. That's absolutely it. And I think the, the musicians that we work with who are service users, there's a real range of ability there as well actually so we've got people that have sung in choirs before we've got people who grew up playing instruments and then maybe sort of left it for a few years there's a real element for lots of people that 
come and work with us of rekindling stuff that's already mm-hmm. there and this kind of latent knowledge or sort of tacit knowledge that just sort of gets reignited and comes back into play. And there are people that maybe haven't engaged much with music and decide that they were going to give it a go. And the the point, I think, always with our projects is that there's got to be a space for everyone and mm-hmm. there is a space for everyone. And in this piece, there's a space for everyone to be involved to the extent that they want to be. couple of the workshop performers joined me to discuss their thoughts and their involvement in this project. Hi, I'm Lee and I've been a client at Connection St Martins since about Christmas time really and I found out about this project a week ago. Hi and uh, my name's Michael and I'm actually from the West London Day Centre in Marleybone and and I've just come here uh, along with the uh, the uh, St Martins the Field group to participate in the orchestra group and as well as the main events in uh, Tate Modern. Um, I'm trying out the keyboard. I'm usually playing the bongo drums or drums itself. Young musicians helping me to teach me how to play the keyboard, which is great. I'm learning something new, a new skill, basically, which is great. That's what I want to do. And I've I've been introduced to an instrument. I think it's called a gorello. It's like a a wooden instrument, like a rattle, but we don't call it a rattle. And it's quite fun. I asked for the instrument which I could cause least damage. <laughs> and that's okay, Lee, have that. It's quite quiet, which is fine. But I've grown attached to it, and I, I'm not going to take it at the end of, of the show, but I might treat myself to one. So I'm resuming my musical career, Ben. And um, did you know the piece? How are you sort of introduced to it? Because it's a very unusual piece of music. Well, the lyrics are two sentences, aren't they? And could be anyone of a number of people I know. This gentleman, like, he's is, is got, like, a, I can, I just has a religious type of voice and he's sort of patriotic voice. He believes in, in God. It feels like he believes in a God or Jesus. In the Love Me Soul song is, is like he loves this melody. Um, we start to, I like to sing it with him sometimes, you know what I mean? I like to participate. It's good. It's something new, which I like. It's excellent. Also, it's it's important to say probably it's quite a local piece. I, I'm a Londoner, and I think this guy lived in the ball ring underneath IMAX some 40 years ago, and uh, lots of us here would would have known of that. Mm. Some people here might well have lived there. So it's localised. It's like five minutes, ten minutes at the most from from the tape where we're performing. So that does give it a bit of resonance, really. And how do you think it highlights or sort of accompanies the idea of homelessness or of, of isolation? What are the connections between this music and those issues? Homelessness is isolating. Um, I think it's easy to have a fantasy, a kind of biscuit tin lid image of homeless people all getting one long together, and it, mm. it's not true. So I think the song for me talks about someone who had an intimacy and relationship with his God, yeah. which uh, which transcends, yeah, the 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 natural, and maybe it's a replacement for found relationships in this life. I mean, the title, Jesus Never Found Me Yet, which I guess is in contradistinction to what we presume is this fellow's life of failure upon failure. And the the friends I know who have been homeless for a long time, that seems to be a common life story, really, being being let down in relationships which have been incomplete, if not even toxic. I totally agree with this gentleman. I, I found... 
I find one, I could almost meditate on the theme, really. Yeah, it's a treat. Um, I, I think I'm quite opportunistic, and it's just an opportunity I was going to make the most of. But sometimes we don't get too many treats in this life. And I think the idea of playing at Tate Modern. The opportunity to play, hopefully, in front of a nice audience, that'd be great for me anyway. Mm. <laughs> and I'll stay, stay as long as I can. If I'll stay longer than one o'clock, then I'll be tired out. Wow. <laughs> Well, fetch my sleeping bag and have a little sleepover and, yeah, and enjoy myself, definitely. Thank you. Back to Gavin Bryars for his final thoughts on the upcome of the then upcoming performance. I started by asking about the transcendental details that can be found in the vocal loop itself. I think there's, so, there's a lot in the voice and, and one of the things, that, in fact, in a way, the erratic qualities and the fact there are some little bits of background noise in there makes you forget that it's a loop uh, and it sounds quite fresh. And I've done this piece many times over the years and I still when I'm you know at the beginning of a, of a performance the, the old man's voice singing alone before we start playing I'm still touched by it mm. and when we're playing I still hear things in it which I feel I haven't heard before or that I'm experiencing for the first time but I'm being drawn into that experience again. I have this feeling that even though I think everyone's there for the first three hours, that a lot of them will stay on longer than they think they're going to. Well, we'll see. I mean, I'm, I've got to stay for the whole 12 hours, but uh, um, it's, it's all my fault anyway. Um, and a lot of my musicians. Um, but we'll see. I, I think you're right. I think there are also maybe some of the homeless people will stay longer and even join in later, which is also fine. That can happen. We'll just have to work out where they join in and, uh, you know, add a little bit. I did start out as a jazz musician, so I'm quite used to loose structures you know. <laughs> is, is it hard to be the sort of well for part of it the conductor or at least the, the, I think people will be looking up to you maybe more kind of just to see that you're smiling well I want to be encouraging and I also don't want to th think of me as being the, this great composer I, I might be a great composer but in this case I'm just the guy who brought this to life and in a way you know I, I want to show uh, that I, by not being kind of severe and didactic and uh, rigid the, this piece isn't like that and i can i can show how they can be r relatively laid back about it obviously to play as well as they can as accurately as they can but it's not the end of the world if something goes wrong and uh, we can always recover and so i think this sort of i feel sort of rather benign towards it and I, my job is to enable this all to come together I suppose in some ways you're you're kind of gifting the piece. You're 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 you're, you're giving the piece to these people in the room, and they're they're in, in exchange giving it to the audience. My my view about anything I write is that once it leaves my hands and goes out to the performer, it's their it's their music. It's not mine anymore. Uh, it, it it has a new life because of them, and that's even more the case with a piece like this. Workshop leader Jackie Warduck added, What is success for you with a project like this? I mean, that's a, always a really interesting question to ask. Yeah, well, it's got to sound good. Um, and part of things sounding good in music is the way that the group starts to listen to each other mm. and interact really strongly. So for me, those two things go hand in hand. And then, you know, we're looking at the, the success of the project in terms of people's well-being and sort of shifts of mood and bonding within the group and people that maybe in their lives elsewhere might 
be a bit cautious about being involved with groups of people for all sorts of reasons. Um, if this is a space where people can connect socially mm. and do connect socially, then that's another success, I think. You've been listening to audio excerpts from the rehearsal and then finishing with the concert itself, the performance in the Tate Modern Tanks. From my experience in the audience, everything it was hoped and planned to be. Charlotte O'Dare told me... I think a lot of the feedback was that people did just feel really moved by it and I think there's just something so poignant about the old man's voice and a lot of people talk about the hope in it which of course there is but for me there's a lot of sadness in it as well when the full weight of the orchestra was behind the old man's voice it felt as though he wasn't so alone but there's kind of more poignancy when it's just him on his own which I I definitely agree with as well. Going throughout the night enabled us not only to have people who are or have been homeless performing, but also to encourage people who are currently homeless um, to come. So we worked closely with support workers who have various different clients. That was one of the things I was most happy about because, again, that was completely uncertain. We didn't know whether those people would feel welcome to come to the Tate to stay there throughout the night, but they did. And I think that's one of the things that really created the very special atmosphere What was interesting about doing such a mammoth performance was how different it felt at different points throughout the night. So at the beginning, it was very busy. There were a lot more of our performers there. And then obviously that all was in a constant state of flux. So that at 2 a.m., where lots of people were drifting in and out of sleep and there weren't so many performers on the stage and everything became a bit dreamy and sort of ethereal. And then kind of gradually progressing back up to the final hour which is when for me everything kind of made sense in the last hour it was sort of when it was at its most beautiful and I think probably because everyone was exhausted and had been through such a range of emotions throughout the night having all of the performers come back so some people were coming back kind of refreshed but other people were not And the sort of final haunting bit where I think it's just the viola player that just sort of finishes it, the whole thing off, was really mesmerising and it was really, it was almost so stunning that nobody really knew what to do. So there was silence (laughs) for ages until one of the sound men eventually encouraged everybody to applaud. And then the sort of 10 minutes standing ovation was so moving and um yes yeah, so lovely to to see and for Gavin to experience and then he had to eventually make the sign that he needed to go to sleep so that everybody would stop clapping um and it really felt those of us who were there throughout the night had really kind of gone through something together and it felt bigger than a concert or um it kind of just felt really important and the word that people kept using was happening. It sort of felt like a happening. For more details about this project, please visit asmf.org. And to learn more about the piece, please visit the composer's website, gavinbriars.com. I'm Ben Eshmade, and you've been listening to the Academy Podcast. 
That's about all we have time for. But as usual, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you have heard. So please do get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag ASMF podcast. Thanks 